You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Carmelite Spirituality Conversations with Mark Danis and Francis Harry. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations and Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We're excited to be with you today because we're going to be celebrating the canonization of our newest Carmelite saint, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. This canonization mass actually occurred in Rome yesterday, the 16th. And we, of course, uh, in Carmel across the world are very excited about this event. Uh, I know Francis and I have been anticipating this for quite some time. We've looked forward to the opportunity uh, to do this uh, conversation, have this conversation with you. But in addition to that, um, and with perfect timing, the Holy Spirit saw fit to allow the release of a brand new book about Elizabeth that we're going to talk about um, here during our conversation, and we'll share some information uh, with regard to it. But before we get into that, I want to say hi to my co-host here in studio, which we've not been together for a couple of weeks, I think. Francis, great to see you again. Great to see you too, Mark, and I'm excited about our reflection on um, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. You and I both love her very much, and um, so uh, I, we're just so excited to share um, some of the teachings that we can glean from her life and her love and her light. <laughs> yeah, I suspect this won't be, of course, it's not the first program we've done on her. We did a program, a series of them, actually, when she was Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. And I suspect this won't be the last program we'll do on now Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity. Um, as you and I were discussing, Francis, even before we came on today, there is a wealth of uh, spiritual teaching and um, gold to be mined. Uh, from her, albeit fairly brief amount of writing, there are a number of letters that she wrote, but her actual um, uh, spiritual writing is fairly limited, but nonetheless very rich. I want to just make quick note of the book before we go into prayer here today. Uh, the book that we're going to largely be drawing from beyond mine and Francis's own experience and previous reading about Elizabeth is simply titled Elizabeth of the Trinity, A Life of Praise to God. It's actually written by Sister Giovanna della Croce, a Carmelite sister in Italy, uh, and was translated. It's actually been uh, available for a couple of years in Italian, but it was recently translated by Julie Enzler, um, somebody we, we both know from the Avila Institute. Anyway, let's begin our uh, conversation with God in prayer. Francis, would you mind leading us and give us a little background on the prayer you're going to offer? Oh, I'm happy to lead us in this prayer, and it is the most famous prayer of Elizabeth of the Trinity, entitled, Oh My God, Trinity, Whom I Adore. And we're just going to do the first paragraph, because um, it's a rather long prayer, but what a great prayer to take to prayer with you and to ponder each phrase. It is so potent. Um, I highly recommend everybody to download a copy of this. Uh, it's easily to find uh, it online, um, but, but to pray with us. So um, let us do as Elizabeth would ask us, and that is to get recollected um, and reflect on uh, the divine indwelling within our souls. And let us sign ourselves and pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, my God, Trinity, whom I adore, help me to forget myself entirely, that I may be established in you as still and as peaceful as if my soul were already in eternity. 
May nothing trouble my peace or make me leave you, O my unchanging one. But may each minute carry me further into the depths of your mystery. Give peace to my soul. Make it your heaven, your beloved dwelling, and your resting place. May I never leave you there alone, but be wholly present, my faith wholly vigilant, wholly adoring, and wholly surrendered to your creative action. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you, Francis. I, I will say that, in part, you've already answered the very first question that I wanted to use to begin this conversation. It's an interesting question. It's worthy of at least a little bit of consideration. That is, why does the Holy Spirit direct the church to make saints at particular times. I'm reminded of um, Miriam, uh, who we recently did a program on, as you know. Yeah, St. Mary of Jesus Crucified, which we often refer to as Miriam. Yes. Yes. Um, And uh, we both speculated, I think it's reasonable to assume that the Holy Spirit, and we know it's the Holy Spirit who determines when these individuals are identified as models of sainthood, that he... um, Uh, would have done that at the time that he did just over a year ago now because of Miriam's importance in the dialogue between Christians and Muslims. She sat right in the midst of that, um, um, you know, conflict, if you will. Today, we're asking why Elizabeth and why now? And I just want to read from the text that I referenced earlier um, in the chapter titled The Simple Life. The process for her beatification, introduced in 1931, was not completed until 1987. But her mission to bring souls to God through interior recollection in the depths of their own souls continues today in these times that are profoundly marked by the search for a new hope and a rediscovery of values such as silence, prayer, and solitude. Now, Francis, you and I <clears throat> talked about this. We both seem to be struggling with a bit of a, a cough, but we <laughs> right. talked about this just before um, we came on the air. And it is so true. Those three virtues are so necessary at this time. Silence, prayer, and solitude. I think that has something to do with why Elizabeth has been raised to the altars at this point in the church's history. And I just want to bring up when she was declared a blessed by Pope John Paul II, what he said um, during that beatification mass, he said to our disoriented humanity that no longer knows how to find God or defigures him, searching about for some saying on which to place its hope, Elizabeth gives witness to a perfect openness to the word of God. She had assimilated this word of God to the point that it truly nourished her thought and her prayer and to such an extent that she found in it all her reasons for living. Well, and I know, Francis, you wanted to provide the more objective um, uh, aspects of the church's uh, means of identifying an individual for canonization. Of course, that requires two miracles. Right. And if you just would quickly outline for us the events that led up to uh, Elizabeth's canonization. Well, the first miracle that um, was used to declare her blessed was the Cardinal Albert de Cotre, who was Bishop of Dijon from 1974 to 1981. He was cured of cancer through Blessed Elizabeth's intercession. And 
you know, I was surprised to learn that, Mark, because I, when I was battling cancer, I turned to Blessed Elizabeth to be um, my steadying force and my to help me in the prayer. I think, and, as I recall, I loaned you the relic for right, a time. Right, right, right. And I was so grateful. So when I found this out recently, I was like, wow, I can really relate to that myself. Um, the second miracle was a, a healing that uh, Pope Francis acknowledged was that of Marie Paul Stevens. Um, she was a Belgian woman who had Sjorgen's syndrome. I, I, don't, I don't know how to pronounce that, but it's a glandular delete, disease. And she w- had been a very active person. And because of the disease, which came on rapidly, um, she became very passive. And she um, actually entered the secular order of Discalced Carmelites in Belgium and had been a fan of Elizabeth of the Trinity all of her life. And it was only... After she had joined the secular order um, and she had invoked Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity at that time to help her in the journey, not not necessarily to heal her, but to help her carry this cross. Um, she went uh, and she she was thinking she didn't have much longer to live. And she went to visit um, Elizabeth of the Trinity and, you know, honor her relics and um she came out of the chapel of Dijon, um, which is now in Flavignoro. I'll butcher that pronunciation too. But anyway, she came out of the chapel and she sat down by herself. And all of a sudden she had this warm feeling and she, and she knew she was healed. And of course she was. And she's very vibrant and lively today. And she also couldn't sing because of the disease. And now instantly she could sing again with her great voice. So um, it's just awesome that Elizabeth of the Trinity drew another soul into Carmel. And, and then this miracle occurred, um, just confirming Elizabeth of the Trinity's intercession for us. Well, I want to offer, beyond the obvious, the the objective means and the necessary means for identifying Elizabeth, we said earlier, why is it that the Holy Spirit, who ultimately is the one that moves the church in this way, why is the Holy Spirit allowing this to happen now? You know, uh, without doubt, Elizabeth could have been elevated much sooner than this, or there could have been a longer delay. But here's an interesting perspective offered by uh, Sister Giovanna Della Croce, who authored this book on Elizabeth, this most recent book that um, we've been able to um, to identify. She says in the introduction, it was 1880, of course, the year of Elizabeth's birth, uh, birth, as was the case in the rest of Europe, the consequences of an anti-clerical prejudice of a government that would soon proceed to violent manifestations against religion could be felt. Many remembered these sad times from the revolution of 1789. To this were added the modernist crisis within the church in France and even tensions created by the American New Deal. This was an interesting observation and I that wonder, she brought up. It, I, I, in a sense, it's like today, what we're experiencing today. That's exactly <laughs> right. You're exactly right. In fact, uh, Sister Della Croce says, although Franklin Roosevelt, going back to the New Deal, would announce the New Deal almost 30 years after Elizabeth's death, Sister Giovanni accurately suggesting that the anti-clerical tendencies in France coincided with anti-Catholic attitudes in America at the time. Mm-hmm. She then goes on to explain in the notes of this particular section of the book, um, and you've already drawn it, Francis, the very 
issues that are surfacing in our country today. Think back, and this is not by any means a, cl- a, a political comment, but as recently as this past week in our own country here in the United States, we saw in the uh, exchange of political discourse in one of the uh, political camps anti-Catholic rhetoric. And right. it's not limited to a political persuasion, left, right, whatever. Uh, again, I'm not making a political comment. I'm not trying to influence in any way the outcome of our pending election here in the United States. It wouldn't matter where you stood on this issue. If you look at what's happening in our country, anti-clerical, anti-church, anti-truth, the issues, and I will say this, the issues of abortion, the, the agenda of gay marriage, so many things that run counter to the church's teaching and the suggestion in some of the political discourse that it's time for the church to update to the modern uh, era. This is the very modernist heresy. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I just want to point out, as, um, as Sister De La Croce does, she says, after this, at the turn of the century, despite Leo Thirteenth, and we're back to Elizabeth's time now, and Pius X's repeated intervention, the modernist crisis today, considered to have been almost necessary, exploded. Preachers put the faithful on guard about accepting theories that apparently reconciled the modern world with traditional Catholicism, but they could not prevent a certain number of Catholics from desiring a serious up, uh, I'm sorry, desiring a serious updating of some ecclesiastical institutions of pastoral approaches and styles of Christian life more in conformity with, at that time, the reality of French society. And as you've already pointed out, Francis, in our time, the reality of modern American society. Isn't this oh, I just telling? Hope, I just hope we can learn from what France went through. Um, this is the moment. We must seize the day, and may St. Elizabeth of Trinity help us in this moment. Well, just to close out this argument about the timing of the Holy Spirit and the elevation of Elizabeth, because I want to take us back to what I think is the central theme here, but um, it's interesting that uh, Dele, uh, Sister Della Croce points out Elizabeth was not an atypical figure, nor was she a contemplative monastic who could be inserted into just any period of history, nor could she be spoken of simply as a saint of silence and interior recollection. This young woman lived with an immense love for the destiny of France. In fact, in a poem composed at age 17 in September of 1897, she expresses her pain at the distancing of her fellow countrymen from the church of her origin. In fact, written to Joan of the Ark, she uh, writes this poem. France, dear country, most beloved, most beautiful, what torment to watch you rebel against your Lord. May the humble little shepherdess, that famous warrior, the glorious saint, restore you. From her eternal homeland, the heroic maiden give you back faith, obtain your victory among the most beautiful, forgiving your heirs, conquering your freedom. O my homeland, beloved France, for you am I consecrated to the Lord. Well, and so the argument I think we would make here is that we in the United States face similar challenges to that which was faced by France at the time, literally at the time of Elizabeth's birth. And what I want to uh, suggest to you, listener, is that the approach, the principles, the the basic uh, elements that would lead to the transformation 
uh, of our country are the very principles that Elizabeth teaches. We talked about them earlier. Silence, solitude, deep interior recollection. I've said before, we've talked about this, Francis, that we think we're going to solve our problems with another political solution, with another economic initiative, with some social transformation. The fact of the matter is none of those um, approaches, none of those philosophies will address the most fundamental concerns in our country. They will only um, uh, deepen our problem. The real issue is we must return to God, and we can right. be very direct about this. We are Carmelites, and we know it is silence, it is solitude, it is deep interior recollection. Interior. And I think that mm -hmm. is one of the reasons, not just for the United States, of course, but for the world, right. that Elizabeth has been given the prominence that she has um, at this time in our, in our history in the church. Well, I want to um, just uh, focus on the first chapter, which is titled A Simple Life. Some uh, of this was the result of... Um, the, the, the deepening of prayer were the result of early experiences of a spiritual awakening, which for Elizabeth began even at the time of her first communion. And I want to just ask Francis, if you wouldn't mind reading a section of that from the book. It's interesting how the first communion is so pivotal in so many of our saints. <laughs> well, it was April 19th, 1891, the day of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity's first communion. It was of fundamental importance in Elizabeth's life. After receiving Jesus in the church of St. Michael in Dijon, Elizabeth seemed to hear Jesus's voice calling her to be wholly his. How? At only 11 years old, she understood the need to begin to guard against her angry explosions and to put into practice the resolution she made to her mother in a note on New Year's Day, 1889. Dear Mommy, wishing you a happy new year, I want to promise that I will be very good and obedient, that I won't make you angry and I won't cry anymore, and I will be a good girl and make you happy in everything. Maybe you don't believe me, but I will do everything I can to keep my promises. After receiving Jesus in her first communion, she felt gripped by him and strengthened in her resolve to overcome her fiery temp temper. This battle will accompany her for 10 years and perhaps until her death. It was precisely her inborn tenacity to finish whatever she began that helped her in this. Yeah, we've shared in previous conversations, Francis, about how Elizabeth, we, we, we want to make sure to set the proper context about right. how this young girl was very much attracted to the things of the world. She was very uh, sensitive to fashion, to music. She traveled extensively. We talked briefly yeah. before we came on today. Dancing. About the, uh, the, the time she spent in the mountains and, and the way she loved the mountains, yeah. parties and dancing, as you mentioned. Right. So we should also know... Uh, that uh, Elizabeth was very um, affected by the uh, uh, early death of her father. I think she was only five years well, old. She had three in a row. Uh, as a toddler, her grandmother died, and then her grandfather dies at six and a half, um, and he had been living with them. And then her father dies in her arms when she is seven. Seven and, years old. Okay. Yeah, when she is seven. So uh, very, very big um, in the life um, of Elizabeth. And of course, this, the response of her mother was daddy's in heaven. And of course, that really changed her outlook. That, that was a pivotal point of, of her pondering what is heaven. 
Well, just to confirm that, um, this is in her own words now as a young girl. She says, I love these mountains that I see. She wrote about the Tabres, and she thought about taking a long trip through the Pyrenees, uh, Luchon, Cataract, etc. Um, she added in her journal, I think I have to do this. In her excursions to the Jura Mountains, she immersed herself in listening to nature's voices, to melodies traced on the blank pages carried along by the flashes of delicate observations. Uh, those are in Elizabeth's own words. So we see this affinity to nature in her writing and her early experiences. Nonetheless, her appreciation and sensitivity to what is going on in the world. But even from that, we're going to discover uh, Elizabeth is able to draw and deepen her uh, appreciation and her understanding of how God works through all of these things. Even at the same time, even at this early age, and as I say in her um, early experiences, worldly pursuits, um, she had ample opportunity for contemplating Jesus within her. Uh, we know, for example, that she was particularly attracted to music and to poetry. Those were two great passions of hers, in, in, incentivized, by the way, by her mother. Um, and they had to do with developing her artistic spirit, but also her contemplative spirit. Well, of course, I have to mention this, Mark, is that her mother was having her trained as a concert pianist, and she won uh, some very important prizes, and so she was very gifted. And there are actually recordings, I believe, out there of of her performance or or of the composers that she performed, and, and, you know, some hard stuff. (laughs) So here's uh, what Sister Delacroce says. Um... Her sensitivity to the positive influence of music and poetry opened her to divine grace and aided her in inquiring virtue, so that I might delight my beloved, resembling a walled garden where Jesus loves to stay, and always doing his will. Today I had the joy of offering Jesus many sacrifices in working to conquer my predominant fault. You know, music does have a way of helping you to pray and to ponder the um, that which is beyond. Yeah, it gives us this uh, sort of sensitivity to something that, though it can be experienced externally, music, poetry, and so forth, we know there's something much deeper below the surface. And I think this is what raised Elizabeth's own sensitivity uh, to an appreciation for contemplation. Well, As you know, um, Francis, we're always looking for practical advice, ways that we can offer our listeners on how they might advance in the spiritual journey and make more progress in shorter periods of time. I think Elizabeth is the model for this. We talked about the brevity of her writings. But aside from living a normal life in the world, which so many of us do, uh, at least for a time, she learned and practiced recollection quite intensely, even before entering a caramel, she was able to do this. In fact, I just want to read a couple of quick excerpts uh, from her own writing. Today, she says, I entrusted my future and my vocation to the Blessed Mother. She had a deep appreciation very early on for the role that the Blessed Mother might play in her life. In her diary, she took notes on instructions given and recorded, uh, her personal impressions, her prayers, her invocations and intentions. This is something, Francis, I think you advocate very strongly for the members in our community, that we should take advantage of sort of documenting our experiences. So we don't necessarily have to journal, although that's very good, uh, but we should capture 
um, you know, our individual progress, sort of, as I said before, we came on the air, a spiritual memoir for ourselves, not only so that we can see what progress we're making, but also, in all fairness, so that we can occasionally see the backsliding that we do uh, and perhaps investigate the consequences of some of that backsliding. Um, she had this other observation, though, uh, that I just want to capture before we take our break. Oh, Jesus, how sweet it is to love you, to be yours, to have you as my soul all. Make my life a continual prayer, one long act of love. Let nothing distract me from you. I would love to live with you in silence. Oh, my maestro. I offer you the cell of my heart so that it can be your little Bethany. Come and rest. I love you so much. I want to console you, and I offer myself as a victim, O maestro, for you, with you. From now on, I will accept all the sacrifices, all the trials, even that of not feeling you near. I ask you only one thing, that I might always be generous and faithful. Wow, that's a potent prayer. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to discuss that briefly when we come back, but a, a quick break and then a reminder, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll be right back.
my hands Ever look toward a cross that stands Jesus in this life and for the next Thank you You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to Carmelite Conversations with Mark Danis and Francis Harry. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian voice in your home. Uh, I think it's fair to say that both Francis and I are very excited to be having a conversation again. Well, actually, for the first time on St. Elizabeth. Right, because before we talked about her as a blessed, but you and I both knew she was going to be a saint, and I think she will be a doctor. I agree with you on that. I... I, um, uh, believe that the depth of the spirituality in her, again, I'll say brief writings, is only beginning to be unearthed. And now, of course, that she's been identified as a saint, more theologians will come to this work and they'll be more publishing, uh, not only of her writings, but of um, the um, teaching that is inherent to them. And we're going to try to explore some of that in our conversation here this week, and I suspect again next week, because uh, we do have a wealth of material. Um, and let's just launch right into it. There's something very important about Elizabeth's experience of the Lord, uh, both before she entered. Francis and I talked about her appreciation for parties and culture and, you know, sort of the worldly experiences of, of France at the time that she was growing up. Uh, and also... Um, uh, her um, experience of God, even after she enters Carmel. And there were a couple of interesting uh, uh, quotes, Francis, I thought, from the text. Well, it's interesting that, you know, here she is, she's practicing this prayer um, so beautifully that there was a certain look about her that even the guys, when it, when she was at the dances, even the guys were like, she's not for me because she's taken by somebody she's else. She's not here, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. But this is a, a quote that's talking about that. And it also refers to um, the maestro, which... You know, we mentioned in the prayer before the break, uh, Maestro is is the conductor of the orchestra. So with her music background, you know, the Maestro is the one in charge. So she's referring to God the Father um, as the Maestro here. So here's the quote. Um, here she's talking about when she went to the parties before entering the convent, of course. In the midst of all the parties, I was so taken up by my maestro and by the thought of the next day's communion that I became insensible to, estranged from, all that was happening around me. So, and, and then when she was in the monastery, she said, 
she was so absorbed in God that sometimes she got lost in the monastery. You know, this is being lost in thought. Yeah. What, what a wonderful experience to be so absorbed. Now, it's happened to me on occasion. I recall sitting in a church once in Washington, D.C., Francis, and it was uh, in the evening and the church uh, allowed people to come in and pray. And I remember being lost and the priest came in and he asked me, he said, you know, it's about time to leave and, you know, we'll be closing the doors. And I sort of ignored him and he became a little bit more brusque the second time. I didn't hear him the first time, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Uh, and and he said it again, and I turned almost, you know... Uh, like shocked, a, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and he said, well, I didn't mean to disturb you. He said, I, I had mentioned something to you a few moments ago. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Phil, I didn't hear you. I said, I think that's a good sign, isn't it? <laughs> and he goes, yes, it's a good sign. Now leave. <laughs> yeah, but, can, I, can I use this as my excuse for getting lost when I'm driving, too? Absolutely. <laughs> lost in prayer. As, as long as you're praying your rosary. <laughs> well, um you know, it's interesting. Uh, Sister Della Croce says she's not just the saint of silence. I have often said myself that if Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity um, was elevated to sainthood, her patronage might be the saint of silence. Uh, but it is important for us to better understand what she has to teach about silence. You know, we've talked about silence, Francis, so much, and I frankly would be more than willing to do another program on it. Oh, yes, Because we must. I think the science of silence as it relates to our spirituality mm. is so important. In fact, I'll introduce you to a text that I got when I was recently at Franciscan uh, by Max Picard about silence, a world of silence, it's called. And I would love to um, have a conversation with you about it. Uh, but Though we might characterize Elizabeth as the saint of silence, the patron saint of silence, um, it would be to our disadvantage if we didn't investigate just a little bit in the context of what Francis just read, how she could get lost in prayer. What was so important about this prayer, about this silence? Why would it have mattered uh, to Elizabeth so much, and why should it matter to us? And there's, a, I think, some information from the text that sort of unearths that. So uh, this is from a section called In the Silence of the Novitiate. Um, It says, except for the first few months during which she needed to rest more than the others, Elizabeth was able to follow the full orarium, um, the celebration of the divine office in Latin, two hours of meditation, and the Eucharist occupied six hours of her day. These are the hours in which the postulant practices abandoning herself to God's love in order to receive the necessary strength to persevere in her efforts to plumb the depths of the interior abyss in recollection and not to abandon that recollection during the hours of work and recreation. So it's practicing the presence of God in a very recollected state. Exactly right. In fact, I think it's really important for us to stop here for just a moment um, and, and sort of reflect on these major themes Uh, that I believe have led the Holy Spirit to gift the church with this saint at this time. Now, we've just read about the need for us to strengthen ourselves for the the work that the Lord wants to do within us. And it is really important. uh, Both Francis and I do a fair amount of spiritual direction, and I think it's very important for us to understand something here. Uh, the the honorarium, of course, which is the the day schedule, if right. you will, for those in the Carmel, and it was very rigorous at that time, very and, disciplined, and it still is. <laughs> yeah, very demanding of them uh, in terms of the hours of silence, the hours of prayer, the hours of reading, and so forth. And she followed that to to a great extent. She followed it to the letter, uh, uh, barring illness, which came later in her life, but. 
Why? Why is that so important? What's the rigor and the discipline? This is not a military discipline. This is not the discipline of an athlete. This is the discipline of a saint, of a spiritual warrior. Why does it matter? Well, because if we do what is necessary, if we respond in the early stages of our spiritual journey in ways that in Carmel are well explained to us. Teresa does it in, Teresa of uh, Avila does it in the interior castles. John of the Cross does it in his four stages. Uh, Therese does it in many ways uh, regarding her response to love. Um, But why is it so important? Because it prepares us for the work that the Lord wants to do within us. What does St. Teresa of Avila say? Most simply lack the courage to continue. And it is the absence of that courage, it is the absence to some extent of the discipline that leaves us unavailable for the work that God wants to do within us. Would he like to make us all saints? Absolutely. Right. We're all called. And and it isn't our effort. It isn't something we can affect. What we can do is what we're called to do. For us in Carmel, it's fulfilling the morning uh, office and and, uh, evening office. It's daily um, uh, prayer for 30 minutes. It's going to mass where possible. Reconciliation, so on and so forth. We know what the office uh, calls us to. We know what our rule calls us to. In fulfilling that, and I say this as much to myself looking in the mirror as to anybody who may be in Carmel or those of you who want to pursue the spiritual journey, you must do, as St. Therese of Lisieux said, the little things consistently and with great love and continually do them. Because if you don't do them, you cannot be made available for the greater work that must be done. St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, in a very short period of time, remember from her entry in Carmel to her death, only five years, five years, Mm -hmm. uh, less than six years, and yet raised to sainthood yesterday. How is that possible? Because she did what she was required to do in the little offices of the day, and it left her available for the Lord to do the great work that had to be done in her. And when you say, and left the Lord room to work in her, Mark, this is so important. It's not we ourselves who make ourselves holy. We just need to be faithful to what God calls us to do, and it is He who sanctifies us, who purifies us. He's the one who uh, does the holiness in us. How well are we responding to his call? How well are we allowing God to work the holiness, the purification in us? Yeah, and I want to say something else in this regard, because it relates back, as I'm going to do, and I know Francis will continuously throughout our conversation. Why, Elizabeth? Why now? We identified all of the problems that face our own country, the United States, and certainly across the globe, if we look at the onslaught of what we could call modernism, uh, the modernist heresy, uh, we look at the, um, the assault to human dignity. What does this say about uh, uh, focused on silence and solitude and interior prayer and recollection? What does that have to do with healing the problems of the world? Elizabeth would tell us, and she does, in fact, God isn't looking to build a bunch of self-absorbed saints, people who want to be holy just for themselves. He's, in fact, looking to heal the mystical body. Right. But the degree to which any one of us allows ourselves to be transformed gives the body itself more balm for healing all of the ills of the body. This a uh, cloistered Carmelite saint in, in early uh, 20th century France who lived only 26 years and 
only spent five of those years in her religious vocation, nonetheless is the model for us now, I would argue, and I'd love to say more about this when we're given time. She is the model for what is necessary to heal the ills that affect our world today, the mystical body of Christ. Why? Because she did such a wonderful job at perfecting herself and made herself available for the work that the Lord wanted to do within her. And it it just dawned on me, and isn't it a statement that the miracles that were attributed to her and and were the reason she is now being canonized um, were interior diseases, the glandular disease, a a cancer. These are interior diseases. So, you know, raising Elizabeth up at this time for the healing of the mystical body of Christ is is the, you know, healing of our interior by recognizing the divine indwelling within us. Well, as we mentioned, there were great forces at work in France at the time of Elizabeth's life, as there are here in the United States today. We've mentioned that. In fact, Sister Della Croce points out that there were powerful political forces attempting to drive a wedge. Does this sound familiar? Yes. (laughs) Drive a wedge between the church and the state. They just don't know what they're doing. They do not know what they're doing. Or if they do know, they're, oh, geez, how evil that is. Um, Here we have uh, what Sister was saying in her her book in Paris the people were working for the separation of church and state since the bishop was threatened because he caused great divisions in his diocese the Carmelite community was thinking of taking refuge in Switzerland that's right there was a, a time when the Carmel of Dijon was contemplating simply moving to Switzerland because yeah. uh, the uh, forces of the state uh, were uh, so oppressive and so um, uh, misguided, as Francis just said. But where does the strength come from that would allow us to confront issues on that scale? I mean, right. these are these are national issues here in the United States, worldly issues as we look across the globe. It is not, as I said earlier, through politics, through economics, or military might, or any other means that the Lord may have provided. If we would only take advantage of what the Lord provides us individually, and we see that in the life of Elizabeth, then we must understand and include in this, not just our prayer life, but also this idea of suffering and of struggle. Elizabeth understood this very well. In fact, I'm going to read uh, uh, again from the text. There's no other written record of Elizabeth's interior suffering during her novitiate year. She confided only in Mother Germana, who who was the prioress of the uh, Carmel she was in, a highly gifted teacher who fully and faithfully followed St. Teresa of Avila. Elizabeth heroically committed to living her faith in God's presence in the depth of her soul. That's according to Mother Germana. Um, She goes on, the Lord doesn't want me to have a single thought outside of him. These are Elizabeth's own words now. And yet he is so hidden that it's as if he didn't exist. He really expects heroism. Now, why do I read that? What's the importance of that line? He expects heroism. Well, first I'm going to tell you, she stole that philosophy from none other than St. Therese of Lisieux. And I don't mean stole it. She, she built on it because it was that we, it was that very uh, imagery in St. Therese of Lisieux, including the reference to Joan of Arc that you read earlier, Francis, uh, that was so profound in Elizabeth's life. And what happens again, this is the depth of Elizabeth's spiritual teaching that we're trying to uncover a little bit. She recognized it was necessary for her heroism to be hidden 
but it would be heroism nonetheless. We know very little about Elizabeth's struggle, about her suffering. Her prioress did, but it isn't widely published. We know far more about Teresa of Avila's and even more so about Therese of Lisieux's suffering, because that's what the church wanted revealed. In Elizabeth, we don't find that. What we find is this continual affirmation of the need for silence, solitude, recollection, interior prayer, and the acceptance of suffering in a heroic way. In fact, uh, Father Valet, who had been given, uh, had given, in fact, a number of the... Um, retreats? The, yeah, Conferences? the retreats that she attended um, were um, uh, provided in the Carmel. Um, he had great spiritual insight as well. He was a great spiritual director. But after she'd been in Carmel only one year and he had some time to spend with her, he asked not to be able to see her again for a while because he was so taken with how she had changed. And I mean, uh, in his opinion, uh, by her year of suffering, she had been a change from this joyful, spirited individual he had known. In fact, he said, you have changed my Elizabeth. He was very uh, sort of taken aback by it. I think he knew what was happening, but at the same time, he found it a bit disconcerting uh, to see what was happening in her life. Now, on January 11th, 1903, Elizabeth was consecrated forever to the Lord. Uh, in the uh, chapter hall of the monastery, in the presence of the entire community, Elizabeth was, in her own words, captivated by the thought of immolation. Immolation, we've talked about before. It's that uh, willingness to give ourselves over, suffering. It's usually associated with burning, in fact. It was like St. Ignatius of Loyola, whose feast day it is today, you know, being ground by the lions and being the wheat of the Lord, become his bread. (laughs) Yeah. I don't often have the responsibility of correcting you, but it's St. Ignatius of Antioch. Oh, yeah, of Antioch. Antioch. Yes, thank you. I'm so glad you corrected me on that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, (laughs) Antioch. More often than not, Francis is putting crib notes across the desk here to tell me what I might have said wrong. Um, Immolation expressed in the reading of Vespers from that day. Um, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, this is from uh, that day, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Of course, we know that's from Romans 12.1. Mother Germana uh, commented on Elizabeth. This was the spirit with which Elizabeth made her vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, which consecrated her forever as a bride of Christ. Now, why do we bring that out? The importance for Elizabeth of this life in Carmel, silence, solitude, recollection, prayer, included this element of suffering, included it to an heroic degree, but in a way that left her silent and absent from, um, you know, sort of the events of the day, if you will. She's not one of those out on the political stage or the economic uh, battlefront. She is one hidden away in the mystical body, but accepting in her own consecration to Christ this idea um, that she will be part of the healing, part of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And of course, when she realizes how much Jesus did for her and how much uh, self-offering, you know, by dying on the cross, then she too wants to imitate him and offer herself in union with him, all of her suffering in union with him for him. 
And she loves this term, which she uses extensively throughout her writing, the bride of Christ. Right, as as all mystics do. Exactly. (laughs) Elizabeth thinks, in fact, like Mary Magdalene, who offers Jesus her house in Bethany. We read in the prayer that Francis read earlier that she wants to be that house in Bethany. She saw her body as the very... I love this imagery. This is her poet uh, voice coming through. Her body itself was the house where Christ could find his rest. Enter into all his joy, she says. Participate in his suffering. And she uses this word, to be a co-redemptrix. Right. Now, isn't that interesting? I want to just stop and, and spend just a few moments on this topic, uh, Francis. There is something else important about this idea of Christ's spouse, becoming Christ's spouse. And honestly, it goes along with the discussion in the church today regarding the proclamation of the fifth Marian dogma. Many have heard about this, uh, which would include these titles, co-redemptrix, which we just read, mediatrix, and mother of all peoples. For those of us who look to Mary as our model and our helper, we too, we know, are called to be co-redeemers, co-redemptrix, participators in the redemptive work of Christ. I just want to read quickly uh, that quote again. She uses the word, it is to be abundantly fruitful, co-redemptrix, to birth souls to grace, multiply the adopted children of the Father, the Redeemer of Christ, co-heirs of his glory. Those are in the words of of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Now, only a few months before her profession, we we mentioned Elizabeth begins to experience um, some of the the onset Mm -hmm. of the disease that would ultimately take her life. It's called Addison's disease, the condition that would ultimately take her life. It is through the next two or so years that she will be completely conformed to this idea of bride of Christ and the image of her spouse. And this will be done primarily through her suffering, through her co-redemptrix title, her um, co-redeemer working uh, alongside her spouse to redeem the world. That's the importance that she herself places on this title. She says, a praise of glory is a soul of silence that remains like a lyre under the mysterious touch of the Holy Spirit so that he may draw from it divine harmonies. It knows that suffering is a string that produces still more beautiful sounds. So it loves to see this string on its instrument that it may more delightfully move the heart of its God. Now, it's interesting that her greatest and most profound writings, these that we're drawing from, partially drawing from, uh, were written largely in the last five or six months of her life. Um, By the way, I want to just take this moment to strongly encourage our listeners to look for the writings, the the complete writings of Elizabeth of the Trinity. They're easily found on ICS, the Institute of Carmelite Studies uh, website. ICSpublications.org, I believe. Exactly, exactly. And and again, as I say, uh, the collection of them is, is, is actually quite brief. Now, you can also get her letters. Uh, which I would recommend as a second part of the reading. And um, her um, poetry is also quite good. I really encourage you, though, to read those um, last uh, three uh, works of her life, the the principal works uh, uh, um, that she wrote in the last uh, five to six months of her life. You'll see them in the text. Um, They are where the, the depth of her spirituality is really 
uh, I think, uh, well documented. And I want to encourage our listeners to um, use the resources that Francis and I will share with you on uh, our site, not only the uh, book that we're working from here today, but also um, there are some great references and great material coming out uh, from the Avila Institute, the the um, um, uh, individual Dr. Lills, who Anthony Lills, who we have mentioned in the past, and, and frankly, who we hope uh, to have for um, a discussion at some point. I know we're right. working on that. Um, he's written extensively about uh, Elizabeth of the Trinity. Yeah. And I believe really his dissertation was on her. It, he was. And he is a Carmelite, a secular Carmelite, a secular I believe. Carmelite like ourselves. So uh, really a terrific resource and encourage you to go on the Avila Institute a website or spiritual direction uh, website and um, and uh, make uh, uh, take advantage of some of those references. They'll help elaborate uh, her writings. And we'll have more material on our own site uh, to give you a little a bit of guidance on how to continue in this uh, exploration of, uh, of Elizabeth's um, spirituality and what she has gifted to the church. Well, Francis, it's taken us... Um, uh, more time than I would have anticipated, but that's okay. We have plenty of material to, to continue our conversation with her. What I'm going to ask, though, uh, now is that you might close us in prayer here today. Well, I've decided to use the final paragraph of the prayer, Oh My God, Trinity, whom I adore, that was written by St. Teresa or Elizabeth of the Trinity. Um, and um, we have some wonderful prayers for our next program on Elizabeth. So, um, uh, I mean, she, she's got prayers all throughout. It's just so beautiful and so potent. But let us get recollected and be thinking of the divine indwelling of the Trinity within each of our souls and pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, my three, my awe, my beatitude, infinite solitude, Immensity in which I lose myself. I surrender myself to you as your prey. Bury yourself in me that I may bury myself in you until I depart to contemplate in your light the abyss of your greatness. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, just a program note, we will continue in our conversation about Elizabeth of the Trinity next week. Uh, and then I think for the last part of the month, just to give people some uh, advance warning, Francis, we're going to be doing a program in preparation for the month of November, which, of course, is the month where we uh, honor all souls and all saints. And we do that both for the church as a whole. And then we in Carmel have our own days for doing that. Um, Elizabeth of the Trinity, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity's uh, feast day, we believe, will continue to be the 8th of November. I've not seen anything else. I know we had a discussion about that earlier today. And so we'll also uh, take time to honor her. Uh, and we'll be doing that likely in the last week of uh, October in preparation for what is a very powerful month in the church and certainly for us in Carmel who have a devotion uh, to the Holy Souls. And that is the month of November where we pray vigorously uh, for their release from purgatory and in honoring uh, our great saints, so many of whom teach us. And certainly Elizabeth is an example of that. Well, until we are with you again next week, we ask God's blessing upon you and St. Elizabeth of the Trinity's intercession for each and every one of our listeners. And until we are in that conversation with you next week, may God bless you all.